I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission, Life at the Heart of an Epidemic. Today's episode, Lessons Learned. If the Seattle area was ground zero for America's COVID-19 outbreak, then the ground zero of ground zero are the facilities that house elderly people. Tonight, in the epicenter of the nation's coronavirus outbreak, the virus ferociously attacking the elderly. Washington state is reporting infections in at least three different nursing homes. Health officials are especially concerned today about a cluster of infections at a nursing home in Kirkland. News that 10 nursing homes and care centers now report cases of the virus. In one retirement home in Seattle called the Hearthstone lives 93-year-old Connie Wagoner. She's seen some things and has the perspective of almost a century of history. And she's also on the front lines right now. What have they told you about the staff members there who have reportedly tested positive for the coronavirus? Two of them tested positive. And then somebody that came in to do physical therapy tested positive. So my next door neighbor had physical therapy with that person. So she's under quarantine now for a couple of weeks. In what ways have you had to change your habits besides, you know, staying in your room mostly? It's the isolation, I think, that's the hardest. Um, I went out for a walk today. And when I came back in, they had a new program going where When we walk in the front door, immediately we have to take our temperature and fill out a form saying what it is, and it just feels so different now. The thing is, you can ask Connie how she's feeling about everything. In fact, you can ask her like eight different ways, and you'll get a version of this. Yeah, everything's fine. No problems. I don't usually get too worked up about anything, uh, which I suppose is something I've inherited from my mom, but I'm, I'm pretty nervous about this. That's Tom Paulson, Connie's son. He's a longtime Seattle journalist covering science, medicine, and global health. He joined us on the call. When anybody had any kind of problem, the response from the old uh, Norwegians was always, oh, just make the best of it. It could be worse. Could be worse. Yeah. One reason Connie's able to keep her cool through this pandemic is she's seen this kind of thing before. Her own mother lived through the last comparable episode, the 1918 flu epidemic. Can you tell me what you know about her experience during that? Well, she didn't talk about it much, but she did say she was a student at the University of Minnesota, and uh, she had to be hospitalized. Apparently, she was quite ill, and they called her parents, who were farmers in North Dakota, to come to Minneapolis to say goodbye to her if they wanted to see her one more time. So she must have been pretty sick. Uh, She really didn't talk about it much. She wasn't the type that made a federal case out of everything, so she never talked about it. She was always healthy. I'm going to jump in. If anybody who knows me, they would be very surprised to see how positive my mother's view is of everything. Nothing is a big deal for her. And my grandmother was the same way, uh, which may be somewhat Scandinavian. Like mother, like daughter. And that was true when Connie's generation faced its own outbreak after World War II. We all had to TB and had to go to uh, tuberculosis sanatorium. How long were you in the uh, sanitarium for? Well, the first time it was a year and a 
half, I think, and the second time a year and three months. So I spent quite a bit of time in the sand. Oh, wow. What was it like inside there? There were six of us in a room, and we made our own fun. We had we had a fairly good time. I mean, I really can't complain. We certainly weren't mistreated. This is entirely different. This is different? Yeah. How so? Well, we're kind of all alone. You know, we aren't allowed any visitors or anything. And we aren't encouraged to mingle with other residents much. And whereas when I was in the sand, like I had five roommates, and, and sometimes we would be allowed to visit with people in other rooms. And it was kind of, maybe it was a lot more fun. So the TB Sanitarium was a party compared with the retirement home in 2020. Yeah, I'd say. I've become, over you know, very short period of time, quite concerned, and that's why I'm going to get her out of there, and and we're going to move to a family cabin and for a while, and and just ride it out. And I just feel like uh, she's at great risk, and. I love her and obviously don't want her to get sick, so I had to twist her arm to get her to agree to leave. But agree she did. Shortly after our chat, Tom, his brother, and his mother made for the family cabin in Idaho. She just She's always been someone who very cheerfully rolls with whatever. Boy, I sound great. Well, you are great. <laughs> you sound like fun to be around to me, Connie. Well, then you'll have to come out and meet me. Maybe like in six months or something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> After all this has passed, yeah. It's a good reminder that while all this feels unprecedented, it's not completely new. That pandemic that Connie's mom barely survived in 1918... The descriptions sound eerily current. Leonard Garfield is director of the Museum of History and Industry, and we asked him for a refresher on that first disease outbreak that shut down much of the world, including Seattle. About 100 years ago, we did go into lockdown. Everybody was told to stay home, stay healthy, and stop the spread of what at that time was known as the Spanish flu. No one really knew where it began, It was a flu that was a little bit unusual in that it infected the lungs of healthy people more um, impactfully than it did older people or younger people. Very unusual situation. So many of the fatalities were actually people in the prime of their life. It was very shocking and very scary to people. It first appeared on the battlefields of Europe. It spread to the United States with returning soldiers. It spread from community to community. This is the era of train travel, the era of returning veterans. People were really moving around in the United States. In this sense, it was in some ways the first modern global pandemic. The Spanish flu arrived in the United States in August, and it came to Seattle in September. And by October, restrictions and mandatory uh, protocols were put into place by the city. And everything was closed. Suddenly, this robust industrial city just coming out of World War I was brought to a screeching halt. 
Schools were closed, stores were closed, the shipyards closed. Thousands of people stayed home, and many people were laid off. Many people uh, lost loved ones. There was hardly a family in Seattle that didn't know somebody, if not have some in their household, who became very ill or perhaps passed away. Churches didn't have their services. And one of my favorite things was the mayor said that you could not have a wedding and you could have a funeral, but only for 15 minutes. It got to the point where the mayor ordered people to wear face masks. They needed to be six-ply gauze if they were to leave their home. And if they were found in public without a face mask, they were subject to arrest. There was a lot of resistance, but as the disease continued to spread and infect thousands of people right here in Seattle, people did begin to pay attention. But by the end of 1918, and really through early the first months of 1919, restrictions were begun to be lifted. So it was about a four-month period, but in some ways the Spanish flu was a forgotten epidemic. As the Roaring Twenties unfolded in the ensuing years, people tended to forget the bad old days of the flu and the war and the general strike that all happened at the same time. And by 1930, hardly anybody remembered the Spanish flu. Those who suffered the most, of course, had passed away. In retrospect, we realized that epidemics sometimes are forgotten by the succeeding generation. It's just not something we want to remember. But there's so many important lessons to learn. And one lesson from Seattle was fast, decisive action by the public health authorities actually did stop the spread of the flu in Seattle. The common good demanded certain actions that weren't always comfortable on a personal level. They meant people had to curtail certain routine activities. They meant that everybody had to sacrifice a little bit so that the community as a whole would be healthy at some point. And that sense of civic spirit, I think, is something that is so important to have during a crisis like this. That's Leonard Garfield, director of the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle. One other point he made is that while history does repeat itself, it seems, along with the pace of life overall, like it's picking up speed. It was a European pandemic that devastated the indigenous populations of North America. It just took years to unfold. It was the Spanish flu that devastated our industrial cities 100 years ago, but it took months to unfold. Now we see a pandemic playing out in a matter of weeks and changing day by day. The rapidity of change in the modern world, in our world, is so great that whatever lessons we can take from those earlier pandemics will be tools for our toolbox to make sure that we're ready to address the next challenge. Dr. Sachita Shah is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Washington, and she also works in the emergency room at Harborview Medical Center, which is on the front lines of treating people with COVID-19 right now. Back in 2010, Dr. Shaw was one of the first doctors from the United States to arrive in Haiti after a devastating earthquake. I was um, in Port-au-Prince for a few days, and then I was up in St. Mark uh, on the coast. The reports and images that we've seen, collapsed hospitals, crumbled homes, and men and women carrying their injured neighbors through the streets are truly heart-wrenching. 
Um, patients would take a, a bus. They called it the Obama because it was paid for by the Americans. It was a big white bus and they would just pile people on it and come up. I mean, people with limbs crushed, people requiring amputations, like really sick patients jammed on a bus and they would unload because the Port-au-Prince, the main hospital in Port-au-Prince was destroyed. And so patients had to go to a lot of hospitals that were 30 kilometers away. A lot of what Dr. Shah did during those first few days in Haiti was figuring out who needed medical care right now and who could wait. The tool doctors use is called triage, prioritizing care when resources are limited, like in war zones or natural disasters. Yeah, so we have two different mindsets in emergency medicine. Um, there's regular triage where we're trying to see it's the sickest patients first. Um, so even though some patients might be waiting longer, um, if you're sicker or you need acute care, um, there's a threat to your life or a threat to a limb, um, those patients will come back to the emergency department and be seen sooner. Um, in the mass casualty, the triage shifts and we use a color-coded system where patients that are um, unlikely to survive, even if they are still alive, um, are put in the same category um, as patients who are already deceased. Again, Dr. Shaw says that when resources are severely limited, patients who are still alive but thought to be unlikely to make it are basically considered already dead. Priorities have to shift to patients who are more likely to live. Patients who are considered salvageable but really sick then become the top category. And that that switch in decision-making is um, what happens in a, a crisis. It, it becomes a different standard of care, obviously. And, um, and that is unfortunately something that in global health, we have to do a lot when there's very limited resources. Is that a hard switch to make in your mind or is it muscle memory? It's a hard switch to make, um, I think, for for any clinician. So what do you think the some of the most salient lessons from your time in a place like Haiti or your just experience generally in in those kinds of situations where you have less capacity than you really need? Um, what do you think some of the most salient lessons are for for what we're bracing for now? Um I think creativity, we just started making our own hand sanitizer uh, at UW Medicine. And um, we are uh, using a technique of shooting portable x-rays from outside the door through the window of the patient so we don't have to wipe the machine down and expose the staff, which is a technique developed in during the Ebola crisis. Um, and I just saw a picture yesterday of nurses running pumps Ended tubing underneath the door of negative pressure rooms. And it's so they don't have to go inside and open the door. Every time we have to go in and open the door, we have to use a bunch of protective gear and then throw it away. And, um, and so if they just run tubing, they can manage all the pumps, you know, if there's an occlusion or they have to switch a bag of fluid out. Um, I just saw someone doing that yesterday and it's just, it's pretty amazing. I, I heard recently they're hooking up ventilators to multiple patients. I mean, that's something that isn't even, it's like kind of a mind blowing concept, but people are working with engineers and figuring stuff out. And so I think that not panicking when a situation becomes a roadblock and just trying to think outside the box of a creative solution is what we're used to doing in global health all the time. And, and I'm seeing that employed more and more. 
So can I ask what you're most sort of um, anxious about or worried about in the coming days and weeks? Are there particular things that are keeping you up a little bit? You know, I've been in contact with colleagues from Spain and Italy, um, and I feel that if we get to that point where we have so many sick patients and we have to start saying, you know, gosh, you're over 60, all we can do for you is palliative care, which is what they're doing in some parts of Italy, like that will just be heartbreaking. Like we're not not used to that here. Clinicians aren't used to making those decisions and, and uh, like Americans aren't used to hearing that kind of news. Sachita Shah works in emergency medicine at Harborview in Seattle. We're going to hear more from her in the next episode of Transmission when we dig into what it means to have a healthcare system that's stretched to the limit. Before we go, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts and writing a review. And send us your feedback, along with a voice memo recording of how the pandemic is affecting your life, to outreach at knkx.org. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner, Kevin Kniestad, and Jennifer Wing. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila, and thanks also to Matt Martinez and Kari Plog. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Catch you next time on Transmission. <laughs>